Se siente bien saber que cuando le pones sirope a tu Big Breakfast with Hot Cakes de McDonald's, tú controlas dónde cae. Primero se acerca a tu biscuit y rodea la salchicha, luego llega a tus hash browns y finalmente a tus huevos revueltos, dándoles ese sabor dulce del maple. Ordena por anticipado en el lab de McDonald's y que fluya el sirope. Para pa pa pa. Móvil Order and Pay en McDonald's participantes regira la descarga y registro. Calcaterra, Stephen Goldman, Frank Gritty, Lincoln Mitchell, and Tova Wang. Welcome back to Say It Ain't Contagious, the podcast parked at the intersection of sports, politics, history, and social justice. It's like the old vaudeville joke where I borrow your car and say, I had a little accident. You ask, where is the car now? I say, it's parked between 5th and 8th. Where between 5th and 8th? All the way between 5th and 8th. We are all the way between 5th and 8th. I'm Stephen Goldman, and I am here, as always, with Tova Wang, Frank Ritty, Lincoln Mitchell, Adrian Burgos, and Craig Calcaterra are on assignment. It's been a year since George Floyd was murdered by police, and it's time to reflect on what progress we've made, if any, as a country, on what is the central story of American life, the struggle for equality of treatment of all people regardless of cosmetic differences of pallor. Sometimes I'm called upon to drive my son to school, and when I do, I cut through this neighborhood of small Cape Cod-style houses that date back to the 1950s. Many of them have these signs next to the door that spell out welcome or home. They're very cheesy, but I guess they're meant to be sentimental, to say this neighborhood is warm. But as you go down the block, you also see Trump signs, even now, and Blue Lives Matter flags. These convey a different message, and I'm often left to wonder if someone who simultaneously displays both those objects understands the incoherence of what they're saying. And this brings us to the baseballness of this, which intersects with the rest of it. The May 2017 incident in which Orioles outfielder Adam Jones said that he was the subject of racist taunts at Fenway Park. At that time, Kurt Schilling, the self-appointed spokesman for the worst people, said Jones was lying and he wasn't the only one who did. No doubt some people went along with Schilling, believing that, as he said, this is somebody creating a situation. And I'm wondering if, after George Floyd, Ahmad Arbery, and others, someone like Jones would be given a little more credence today. But I also wonder if they wouldn't, because Schilling's problem with Jones was, he said, that Jones was a guy who, and I quote, intimates the entire sport is racist. And that echoes the same complaint that right-wingers have made regarding critical race theory and the 1619 Project. A year later, that's still the same hill we're fighting over, including after the murder of George Floyd. Why is that, Frank? Wow, you want me to answer that that question? Uh, thanks, Steve. Uh, you know, it's funny, you mentioned the Adam Jones-Boston uh, situation. It reminds me of something we just saw a few days ago uh, when Kyrie Irving, the star guard of the Brooklyn Nets, made some comments anticipating the Nets, uh, they're playing the Boston Celtics in the first round of the NBA playoffs. And he said at, the, at a press conference, like, uh, you know, he essentially said, look, I'm bracing myself for, for the return to Boston because he used to play for the Celtics. And he was intimating and saying that, you know, he was anticipating the racist taunts. And he was asked point black that question and he didn't deny it. 
And so the reaction you know, to Irving, I think, was a little different than what you know Adam Jones probably experienced uh, four four years ago now. Uh, in that there is a space in the sports world to talk about systemic racism. Obviously, people on the right don't want to ever hear that and will get defensive and, and get upset, as, as they did with Irving, you know, a couple of days ago. Uh, but there's no question that in terms of, you know, in terms of rhetoric, in terms of discussion, in terms of talking points uh, to talk about systemic racism in sport is, uh, is not as controversial as it was before last year. That's one shift. But, you know, this is a bigger question for us, you know, that, I, that I'm, I'm glad we're taking up today, even though this feels a, a bit formulaic since so many people have you know, been reflecting on where we are one year after the murder of Floyd, Arbery and Breonna Taylor. But it's an important discussion to think about this in the sports world and also to think about it in a, in a bigger context, in the bigger political context. And I think, you know, on, on, on the one hand, I think we can see some symbolic changes. Uh, we obviously saw the, the verdict uh, of Derek Chauvin a couple of weeks ago. We see things uh, like the George Floyd Policing Act, uh, which was passed in Congress, is, is in the Senate right now. But at the same time, I, I can't but feel that we're at a bit of a moment of, of a lull, of, of demobilization, partly because of the fact that this is a lot of fatigue. Even those of us who are not, you know, hardcore activists, but certainly those who are, are, are feeling a sense of fatigue, too, given that, you know, the political dynamic has changed since Biden came into office in, in January. You know, I think there, there's evidence of some shifts, and, and I think we could sit, speak more about the, the ways in which some things have shifted, but obviously things have not moved at all either. I want to ask, though, Frank, I mean, so you mentioned Kyrie Irving and, of course, Boston. I, I was going to say that the NBA really is quite different than the other leagues and how much of it is attributable to that. I also was incredibly impressed and taken with the players and Doc Rivers, who I love, wearing T-shirts the other day, I suppose on the anniversary, saying, call your senators, pass the George Floyd Act. And it just seems that there is much more acceptance for obvious reasons of that conversation in the NBA and the WNBA, of course. It seems to me that Major League Baseball, relative to, as Tova points out, the NBA and the WNBA, and I will, I don't really pay attention to basketball other than at some point if the Warriors, you know, I mean, usually my excuse to not pay attention to basketball was for many years the Warriors are so bad, people didn't want to talk about it. But baseball has the relationship to the NBA that our political system has to the rest of America. And what I mean by that is that because of structural reasons, our pol politics, our politicians, our political world is much more conservative on these issues than the rest of America. Politics in America lags behind culture, lags behind commerce, even business, the business community on these issues, and certainly lags behind even most of sports. Baseball lags behind the rest of sports that way. And that's why, you know, to go to the, the example that Steve gave earlier with Kurt Schilling saying, you know, we'll make it seem like, all, like baseball is a racist institution, which, of course, it has been for a very long time. And it ebbs and flows. That's not exactly news, but it's the same way that, you know, in the Republican Party, it's an article of faith that the United States isn't a racist country, which is, it's worth noting, one, that that's just empirically wrong, but also that's the kind of conclusion that comes from people who probably aren't capable of connecting thought. But is it stupid? Why is it so? Yes, it is stupid because it precludes a nuanced understanding of anything. And it is stupid in service, obviously, of a nefarious moral agenda. And legislative agenda. But rather than, than characterize it that way, and I'm not disagreeing. I'm not making an ad hominem attack. I'm trying to be analytical here. Like when you listen to someone say America is not a racist country, among other things, what they're saying is, I don't have the tools to do any rigorous analysis. I don't have a comparative context because 
America is a racist country, and so is the United Kingdom, and so is France, and so is Israel. A lot of countries are racist. What I'm asking is, why do they not have those tools? What psychologically is so powerful? Is it that if I'm always reminded, I think of all the things that Barack Obama said in eight years in office, the one that sticks with me is when he said, you didn't build this. And he was talking about the different ways that a community comes together to make prosperity possible. And he, in that specific context, I believe he was talking about small business owners. But even small business owners need state intervention so that the street goes up to the door of the bakery that they're subsequently going to use to deny gay people a wedding cake. If the, the street didn't go there, then no one's going into that store. Similarly, if the police didn't patrol that street, then someone would rob the receipts every single day. So no, you didn't build this. But I think I think broadly, there's something when we have something like a 1619 project that says, hey, America was founded on slavery before it had all these other enlightenment principles, and that animated a lot of what came later. It's really upsetting on a psychological level, even if it's factual, to certain segments of the white population. And I don't know if it's because they can't accept that same, you didn't build this idea that they benefited from the the structural racism or the privileges of their whiteness, or it's some other thing. I don't know what's going on inside of someone's head. All I know is what they say publicly, right? I think I'm grateful that I don't know what's going on inside Kevin McCarthy's head or something like that. But when you say, you know, I don't want to, you know, let's ban the 1619 Project. These are people, of course, dedicated to free speech, as Marjorie Taylor Greene says, but let's ban the 1619 Project. On the one hand, obviously, they're threatened by it. Obviously, they want to keep the structures of white supremacy in place and all of that. But there's also a part of it that is, I don't want to have to think about anything with nuance because I'm not able to. I think also, you know, part of it when people say America is not a racist country, they think, oh, that means you're saying, if you, if you disagree with that, you're saying that I'm a racist. And these people do not see themselves as racist. They do not believe they are racist. They, that's where, you know, another nuanced thing that they are not processing. And um, I, I think that's a big part of it. And I'm, you know, it, I compare it to, I'll bring up a, a poll that I shared with you guys actually a couple of weeks ago. I, I often have not stood for the national anthem at games. Um, and there's the same type of um, glare that you get of being so offensive to, to what they are believing in. And it's the same kind of shock to their system that you would call, say, call them out on being racist. We can talk about it later, but I do want to at some point mention this uh, extensive polling that they've done on attitudes towards the national anthem at sporting events, where you see, not, I guess not surprisingly, but a little bit surprisingly, huge disparities in, by race as for how people feel about the anthem being sung in stadiums and arenas. I think you do have to separate out the way political conversations happen now from what people think. We don't know what people think. You know, we only know what they put out there in public and including in social media. I mean, didn't Kamala Harris herself also say uh, what she put on the spot and she said that America is not a racist country? So, I mean, the question itself is dumb, right? As if you can characterize any country, you know, as either racist or not. Well, it's meant to put people in a bind. It's meant to trip people up. Yeah. Every country, uh, you know, in, certainly in the Atlantic world, uh, since the conquest and colonization of Americas in 1492, has some entanglements and ongoing practices of racism in varying degrees, right? So, I mean, that's not even a question that, that's worthy of, you know, a really serious discussion because, because of the fact that uh, every country in, in this context has, has, has similar histories, right, of varying degrees. 
So there's that. So, I mean, part of the issue here is just the, the way political discourse happens now. And there's no room for nuance whatsoever, right? I mean, there's no room to, to even just make the claim that I love America and I also think it's racist, which is a perfectly reasonable position to have. And I think that's what most people who would argue that the United States is racist would probably say. They would probably say that, yes, I'm, I'm invested in reinvigorating democracy in our society. They're reinvigorating a real notion of transracial democracy. Uh, and I think that's difficult because our political context doesn't allow us to do that in any real way. And instead, we have these conversations that are super, you know, super oversimplified. And I think that the, that's what we often see, you know, in that realm. And I suspect that when you're getting into discussions, you know, outside of a megaphone situation or a social media situation, you, you probably would have more interesting conversations around these questions. And, I, and that probably happens all the time. We just don't see that reflected in our media and certainly on social media or, or in, in political discourse. And to maybe synergize a little bit of what Tova and Frank said, I, I completely agree with you. It's a dumb question. Is this a systemically racist country? It's a dumb question because it doesn't get you anywhere. And similarly, when you Toba talk about people say, if it's a, you're saying it's a racist country, that means I'm a racist. I don't want to be a racist. I think it's a dumb question to ask, is you know so-and-so a racist? And for two reasons. One, I mean, well into 2018, there were conversations not just on you know OAN about is Donald Trump a racist, which is like asking is water wet, right? But beyond that, to a great extent, other than the most extreme cases, why ask that question? Where does that question get you? You know, and I think those of us who are Generation X grew up at the time in, in, in United States history, modern history, we, where the consensus that, you know, we're no longer racist was strong, it was emerging. And there was actually reason to think that we were moving in the right direction. That frames a lot of this so that then you're a racist becomes the worst thing you can call somebody. Rather than saying you're acting in structures that keep a racial system in place. And how do we address that, which is a much more complex and, and difficult question. And it is, you know, none of this is helped by a political environment where through deliberate quirks of a document written, you know, 240 years ago, some groups have more political power than others. And it is not a majority that is stopping the passage of uh, the George Floyd, you know, Voting Rights Act. It's not a majority that is pushing through in many states voter suppression laws. In some states it is, but it, but in many states it isn't. It's a combination of gerrymandering, including the older gerrymander, which is the which is the states themselves, and voter suppression, which flows from that. So would it be more productive if we walked people through it this way and we said, look, this is non-controversial. I hope it is. There were Native American peoples here before the white Europeans came to this continent. Yeah, but that doesn't matter. Rick Santorum says that doesn't matter. No, 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 but that's not my point. Okay. By the way, and that is a, a racial thing or a racist thing that has been said going back to the 19th century about how the, the Native, sure, the Native Americans were here, but they weren't doing anything with the place. And therefore it, it was incumbent upon the white people to take it from them and develop it. That's also a, a racist dead end discussion. But what I was trying to say is if you took a, a sampling of people who were willing to say uh, it's not a racist country because I'm not racist and you walked them through it and said, no, you personally did not participate in the Sand Creek massacre or wounded knee. No, you personally did not dispossess the Cherokee from the ground that you happen to be standing on presently. However, can you recognize that even if you personally do not feel that you are a racist or have participated in racist acts, that you are the inheritor or beneficiary of that sequence of acts that leads to where you are in the present day. Do you think we would get through to people more than Tova if we if we situated it that way? 
Well, I mean, then that's really the conversation that's happening around reparations, right? I mean, the, the members members of Congress who have no interest in that, to say the least, that's the argument they make. I didn't do anything about slavery and all this, and which is obviously misguided. And I, I don't. I also wonder, as as much as I think Lincoln and Frank were getting at this, it's really the actions and the outcomes of racism that matter more than someone looking at, you know, someone individually being a racist and being an asshole, excuse me. But at the same time, the way you're describing it kind of lets these people off the hook. If they don't understand that they're enjoying the privilege that comes with white supremacy and that that is not okay, or if they are someone, and we talked about There Goes the Neighborhood last time, about, well, what kind of a community they want to live in and all those kinds of things that they don't want to be in a diverse part of town or whatever. There are all sorts of things that even if they think they're not racist, it's totally part of a racist system. I am too. But my point is, it's like Dorothy Parker's old line that you can lead a horticulture, but you can't make her think. I haven't heard that since high school, Steve. (laughs) I don't know if I've heard that one at all. Dorothy Parker hasn't been around in a while, but uh, I'm happy to do the Algonquin Roundtable podcast later. But Steve, I think we've maxed out on the number of people who can be persuaded by the argument you made. That argument has been made, and I think it has moved people. It may not have moved enough people who are rural white and have disproportionate political power in the United States. Again, I think, are you, you know, is so-and-so racist? Stupid question. But the defining, a defining characteristic of someone who's not a racist in America is the recognition that America is a racist country, right? If you have any real claim on not being a racist, it begins by recognizing that. Because, Toba, there's a real difference between benefiting from racist structures, right? There's a real terms of moral responsibility, moral culpability, which, frankly, pretty much all white people do or have, you know, benefit from, than being responsible for that. Many white people deny the benefits. I mean, look, my family didn't own slaves. That doesn't mean that we didn't benefit from, from when we became white a few decades after getting here, right? And continue to benefit from that through, you know, today, I mean, literally through today. That's a harder thing to get one's head around, especially if one doesn't want to, right, rather than the responsibility for the racism, which if people can define that as, you know, did you own slaves, for example, did you massacre the Native Americans, as Steve suggested, then people can say, well, of course, I'm not a racist. To me, what 2020 did was, I'm going to pick up on some things that have been said already. 2020 and and Trumpism exposed uh, the fallacies of racial progress narratives which really culminated with Obama's election, right? I mean, Lincoln, you said this earlier, that even I, as a, as a left critic of the United States of America, you know, you know, still want to believe in a notion of racial progress, right? Uh, and, but the virulent reaction to Obama's election and everything that's transpired since then, culminating with what we saw last year, you know, just absolutely debunks the notion of racial progress, right? Which we, you know, I think of, of older generation were invested in on the left and the right. So there's that. And then the other thing that's happened is that this word systemic has entered our vocabulary, which I think has been a good thing, because typically speaking, and the way we were talking about it earlier in this country, racism was always talked about it on the individual level. It's about I'm not a racist or I have black friends or, you know, I'm married to a black person or whatever. Right. And that, you know, the discussion of how race operates always or frequently remained at the individualized level. 
right? And so, you know, the absolute overabundant evidence of police violence against black folks and all people of color, right, has shown that we have a systemic problem around police violence against black people. It's not a few bad apples. Yeah, the the few bad, all of that stuff. I mean, there are some people who will believe in that, you know, to to the end, there's nothing to be done about that. But there has been a shift on that front. Just the fact that people are talking about systemic racism. If they know what it means. Yeah, exactly. And oftentimes they don't. But the scary thing now is that, you know, what do we do in an absence of a, of a progress story? And I think that's what scares people, right? A progress story around, you know, which is deeply embedded in the ways in which you talk about democracy in this country. Well, how can anyone even suggest a progress story right now where you have flagrant white supremacy? Well, then there's that. And that's what I mean. And I think that's what that's that's what's been jarring to people, you know, with a, a lot of folks, you know, including those of us who are critics. I mean, it is jarring to see what transpired on January 6th. But Frank, you just told the progress story. Yeah. The, which one? The progress story is that people are beginning to recognize it's not just a few bad cops. Right. That is a progress story. It's a hard progress story, a difficult progress story, but it's a progress story. I'm saying there's been a rhetorical shift in the dominant political discourse in our country. You know, those in academia, like black activists, would call it institutional racism, right? They never had the same purchase that systemic racism has now. It's the same concept, but now there's a new term. That's just been a shift. I don't know that it's, I mean, it may be progress, and I'm probably narrating it as such, but it's been a shift. It's not just a shift of language. In my view, the fact that Joe Biden, the caricature of the old white dude, says systemic racism in his inauguration speech. And he says it because Joe Biden's has two or three strong political skills. One of them is finding the dead center of his, the Democratic Party. And he says that because that is now the position of one of our major parties. That was never the position of one of our major parties before. Now, that's why I think there's a progress story, but it's a harder, it's not a feel-good progress story. Well, or, I mean, a progress, a real progress story would be an effective fight back at the state level on voter restriction laws. It would be actual passage of the George Floyd Act and the, you know, all of the voting rights legislation that is HR1 and HR4, as we say in the biz. Um, that would be a progress story. I, I thought it was interesting this morning, uh, the article about how back in 82, Joe Biden was trying to get the reauthorization of the Voting Rights Act going, and he was working with people like Strom Thurmond. And so there's no progress if we can't even get one Republican to vote yes on this kind of legislation, on voting rights legislation, when he was having that conversation with Strom Thurmond back in the 80s. I think we're just saying similar things, but from different ways, because I'm, I'm differentiating. Look, I mean, Lyndon Johnson couldn't even get either part, couldn't get his own party unified behind the Voting Rights Act. I'm differentiating between a progress story and a feel good story. Right. I don't think there's a feel good story, mm -hmm. but I think there is a progress story. And, and to paraphrase Winston Churchill, which I always hate to do, um, this feels like maybe it's the end of the beginning. Of and that's not feel good, but it's progress. Where's my order? Does anyone know how to find my order? How can I find, my order? I find my order? Break free from customer support monotony. Welcome to Intercom, the customer support platform that uses chatbots, shared inboxes, apps, and more. Intercom's business messenger resolves questions that can be answered automatically, so customer support feels less like Groundhog Day and more like help is on the way. Go to intercom.com support to learn more. So just bringing this back to our other wheelhouse. Hockey. The pro bowling tour. Yes, exactly. <laughs> By the way, let's go Knicks.
So like I said, and we've been talking about, the NBA continues to do its thing, be very outspoken, including the coaches. I got to say, what has baseball done? I don't know if they did. Did they do anything? They moved the All-Star game from Atlanta. No, I know that one. I'm being sarcastic. I mean, on the, the anniversary of George Floyd's death, did they do anything? No, not that I'm aware of. No. No. I mean, I can hear Craig if he was here. He would sit here and see, see, I told you so. They want this all to go away as fast as possible, right? Craig Cocatera. We all told each other so. Yeah, I think I, I, I'm, I'm a little surprised at how quickly things have, have, have been silenced. Um, you know, and that was because I was a victim of my own progress narrative of social movement activism. <laughs> Baseball is the U.S. Senate of popular culture, right? Oh, God. Yes. Yes. It skews older and whiter. That's its constituents. Go to a baseball game. Yeah. And and I know I've been hitting on this since we started having these discussions, but it's true. Yeah. And it, it just occupies a different place in the culture than it did uh, in previous decades where you, you could see some semblance of this, you know, uh, coming from baseball in ways that it, it doesn't now. That's absolutely true. It does make sense that the, the, the basketball leagues, you know, are the ones still, you know, making noise about these issues. Uh, but they're even there, you know, that you know, they've kind of settled back into we're we're doing the playoffs and. And that's what we're doing now. And I think there's been a, a, a bit of, for those on the, not the nefarious forces trying to silence people and, and pass all sorts of uh, uh, voter restriction uh, laws at the state level, not the Republicans, but, you know, those who have actually been active, you know, you know, they're doing their thing still. But there's, there, there's been a bit of a demobilization here in 2021 because of the fact that we don't have Trump in the White House. And that occupied so much of the energy, along with justice for, for those who've been killed by police violence, too. So, I mean, that was inevitable that was going to happen, at least over the last few weeks. Well, I mean, but you also mentioned at the beginning of the podcast burnout and exhaustion, which is very real. I've been, I, I do, I've been doing a lot of research around youth activists and also Black Lives Matter activists, and I, that is certainly a recurring theme. And it is a struggle and a battle that's very real to not stop now because we're just getting started. The real scary part of that is that 2022 is coming, November 2022, and the the Democrats are are fighting a, a very difficult battle to hold the institutions that they have, and the the people who are burned out, it's asking a lot of them, but they can't say the day after that Tuesday in November, oh my gosh, this was like Pearl Harbor, we never saw it coming. We do see it coming. Well, I, I think yes, I, I would say a couple things. One, 2022. The Democrats are going to lose if they lose because of gerrymandering. The Democrats lost this election in 2009 and 2010 when Barack Obama decided state politics weren't important. So this is not about you know Nancy Pelosi screwing up or something like that. This is not about the Democrats not being unified. This is just the screwed up political reality. The other thing I, would, I just want to add, for those of you who were around last summer, is that the George Floyd – George Floyd's killing sparked you know these protests which occurred – in, in an extraordinary moment in American history, Trump, COVID, and the kind of revived Black Lives Matter movement was a combination and a synergy that we're never, probably never going to see again. And just think back as you're listening to this about what you were experiencing. I mean, I remember going to these demonstrations, you know, having a mask on, being 20 years older in most cases than almost everybody there, being a little afraid I was going to get COVID limping because I had an undiagnosed broken leg and being, you know, concerned, confident that Biden would win and that Trump would never leave. That was a lot. And also like worried that my mom in San Francisco was going to, you know, go to the grocery store one too many times and get COVID and die. Right. I mean, this was going on inside all of our heads. And that creates a whole lot of different emotions, some very positive. 
And we're not going to capture that again. No, we're not going to capture that again. But the question, and this is, sorry, but this is a lot of what I, I work on now, is how do we sustain the, not maybe the energy of that time specifically, but the energy to actually now do the work. Now that there is somewhat of a, an opening, just an opening to get anything done, except for Joe Manchin, um, to, to really try to leverage that pressure now, it's very hard. If this were easy, it would have happened already. Joe Manchin is the dinosaur looking up at the comet coming down and saying, hey, everybody, let's go run under it. But I mean, I think that's where you start looking more at local state level kinds of things that like we see going on like in New York. So right now in New York, we have the mayor's race and the Democratic primary coming right around the corner here. And that's going to be a very interesting development uh, to see, you know, which one of these candidates is going to prevail. And that, to me, will demonstrate the, the political impact of last year. You know, are we going to serve up uh, an Andrew Yang or somebody like that or, you know, that kind of uh, politician, which is a lot of support in that direction? Or is one of these candidates who's speaking a lot about social justice going to emerge? Well, don't forget about ranked choice voting this year in New York City, not to not to get into the weeds. And then there's that. And the Times giving permission to its liberal base not to pursue police reform. Oh, my God, that was something. Right. But that's what that was. I don't think. I mean, the data I've seen, she's not, that, that one outlier poll, which was a texting poll, which is, the methodology was terrible. I don't think Garcia is getting traction, but I think that's a big test. In those precincts, if Garcia is beating Stringer on the upper, and I'm no big fan of Scott Stringer, as, as Tova knows. Guys, not everyone is from New York City that's listening to this. Okay. If Catherine Garcia, who is, who is, who is the neo-Bloombergian candidate, who has said she really will not do meaningful police reform, who has, has gotten the endorsement of the New York Times, if she beats if she gets more votes in the heart of kind of white liberal new york than the progressive candidates that's a real sign that's a real sign and and i don't think that's going to happen but it's certainly possible and she was endorsed by the new york times and that's why i said so before we wrap up here I, i'm curious about returning to where we started with kurt schilling and andrew jones and you know writing off this huge segment of the American public that is apparently, it seems like the consensus here is not persuadable. Do we have no way to convert the unconverted? So the next time that there there is, and unfortunately there will be, whether an Andrew Jones just, just being called names or, or a, a George Floyd, unfortunately being assaulted and murdered by the, by the police, that people are not automatically white people, I should say, are not automatically skeptical of it. How do we achieve the progress story that you were talking about, Frank? To me, what happened in Georgia in January is the model, which is to you know beat back the forces that, that silence voters that are not heard, right? And to deprioritize the people that, that are constantly being talked about, that we're talking about here, those are that, you know, white folks who won't be converted. They're, first of all, there are plenty of white folks who have been converted, right, in, in some way or another. So there's that. But too much political energy from a political standpoint goes to, in that direction. The, you know, the old undecided voter that always gets trotted out in CNN and other places like that. There are too many voters that have, have not been able to vote. We have to fight. We have to fight to, to make sure they're, they're franchised. That's the key. And I think that's what Georgia allowed us to see in part by building a multiracial coalition, which is really about you know, protecting the right to vote, which is being in peril. So in terms of politics, that's what I see. And the other thing I think, you know, we haven't talked the Callaway situation, but it just has to be said. In the academic realm, we talk a lot about intersectionality. We talk about the ways in which racism intersects with sexism, with, with homophobia, transphobia, and class stratification. 
And too often in our conversation has replicated this problem, you know, which is the way, you know, we talk about this on a podcast. We separate these things out over and over again. And I think the way you can reach people is to talk about the ways in which privileges intersect, right? That even people of color, you know, are complicit in some form of racism because they're in these power dynamics, right? I mean, that's just the bottom line, right? And there are plenty of color folks out there. I'm going to speak like I'm from the Bronx you know, uh, uh, have class privileges. And you can argue that the primary beneficiaries of the last year are the, are the black intellectual elite who've gotten a lot more airtime, you know, in the New York Times because of what happened to working class people like George Floyd, black working class people, right? So, so you've got to remember that, you know, there are all sorts of hierarchies that are operating here, that even police violence, even racism plays out differently along class lines among black folks and, and people of color. And so I think one of the things that we have to figure out a way to kind of emphasize is to talk about the ways in which, you know, racial privilege intersects with gender privileges, intersects with, with uh, sexuality privileges as well. And I think, you know, like by looking at things like sexual harassment, you can actually see that in an interesting kind of way in the ways in which, you know, all men become complicit in that sort of that, that form of, of, um, of hierarchies and violence that we see all the time in, in major league baseball and all over our society. Right. So that's an intersectionality lecture that we, we often give in academia, but it, it, it has to enter in the dominant political realm in some way, shape or form, because it, it, certainly those of us who are in platforms like this, it's what I tell my students at Columbia all the time, including the black students, you have privileges, you have privileges, right? You might be marginalized in terms of and racialized, but if you're at Columbia University, you're a black student, you're a student of color, you have a certain level of privilege, right? That, and you're not in the same position as a homeless person on Amsterdam Avenue, for example, in your New York City. That's the piece of, of, of the bigger discussion of systemic racism that often falls away that we have to somehow revive or, or insist on it having over and over again. People have been making a big deal about this having this being Asian American Heritage Month, I think they call it, and also um, you know, the, the, the sudden attack on Asian Americans um, and Asian people in this country that we saw. And there was an interesting sort of alliance, I don't know how, what we're calling solidarity um, with other groups like Black Lives Matter, with Asian um, organizations that was good to see. And I think that kind of thing is promising. That's an excellent point. Yeah, no, that's, that's really true. I think that, that that's been a significant shift we've seen too uh, over the, in the last few months. You know, to pick up on what Frank was saying, it occurs to me that in baseball, like in all sports, but we're talking about baseball for the most part, that intersectionality plays out in very interesting ways because we are talking about a lot of ball players who are African American and Latino and have you know enormous amounts of money and through that privilege that other people don't have and but also in this very male environment um so so this is just further nuance how we have to think about baseball players. I mean, so I, I wish Adrian was here because if we talk about intersectionality and, and multiracial solidarity, I imagine that there is not solidarity among black players and Latino players for the most part, but that's, that's, I mean, that they, that is not something that is discussed, but I have no idea. Well, it's certainly not reported on. And that was one of the great failures last year, that there was no concomitant, you know, attention to Afro-Latinx ballplayers. I mean, a majority or certainly a significant portion of those who are Latino ballplayers in Major League Baseball are people of African descent, whether they recognize it or not. <laughs> and there's no, there was no discussion of that at all last year. And that was a great failure of, of the baseball press. And I would say even the, 
the progressive press who just did not, you know, even think to ask these questions of the ballplayers last year, and they still don't. Yeah, but they did they speak up also? Well, I mean, most of them did not. Yeah, yeah, no, that's absolutely true. I mean, that's that's true because and, and but then again, you know, even U.S. black players were reluctant to speak up last year, right? I mean, that was one of the interesting things that we saw over and over again. Like even some of them would say, "Look, I, I'm t- I'm taking a big risk." We expect uh, U.S. born black athletes to speak out against racism, but that again, that's a recent phenomenon. They were not encouraged to speak about racism either, right? So. Um, you know, and, and we've seen that silence broken, as we've talked about already, at least more so than it was, uh, you know, before 2020. Whereas they were not encouraged, they used to speak out more, even though they weren't encouraged to speak out about it. And that's, that's notable. They did. No, that's exactly right. All our heroes growing up, even Reggie Jacks, people like that, were people who were not afraid to speak out against racism. He was one of my heroes anyway. Well, with Reggie, he wasn't afraid to speak out about anything else either. Well, that's right. That's right. But, you know, he was a celebrity where he didn't have to. He could have just, you know, made his money and he did. And, and he, you know, even at the end of his career, after the Al Campana situation, you know, he, he was right there on Sports Illustrated talking about uh, racism in baseball. So, you know, and he was a celebrity, right? He was an analogous to a Jordan kind of figure in, in the NBA. And in, in the 1990s, Michael Jordan was not saying anything about racism. Oh, God, no. You know, Reggie, when he was playing, and I say this as someone who, in my, in my primordial baseball days, the Oakland A's were very, very good. I was just learning about the game. And in the Bay Area, Reggie Jackson was enormous. I mean, he was this large, even though I barely knew anything about baseball. Then he went to, I've always loved Reggie Jackson, but Reggie Jackson got a bad rap because he committed the crime of making a lot of money, which is, you know, in baseball world, that's not a crime at all. But I think there's a revisionist history about Reggie Jackson. For some of the reasons Frank said, I think, um, frankly, some of his positions around Jewish ballplayers, he did a lot of good things. He, he was on the right side of a lot of issues. He was. He turned 75 the other day. I was just going to say around his birthday, there was a lot of Twitter action and I, somebody was talking about the Reggie bar. Oh yeah. I remember it. <laughs> I definitely remember it. I ate it and I liked it. I had one. Yeah. I used to buy them on principle, but they were terrible. <laughs> they were terrible. They were terrible? No, they were good. They were terrible, but whatever. It didn't matter. I was, I was eight years old. I didn't know it was a chocolate bar. Anything. Yeah. Is that right? Anything with chocolate in it. It was like. I never liked that genre of chocolate bar, like the Snickers, Milky Way, Reggie genre. I just like chocolate. Uh, you're, you're unenlightened, clearly. Clearly. Up there in the backward San Francisco. They weren't that easy to get in San Francisco. All right. This is a whole other topic of conversation. You're not understanding the nuances of, of chocolate. Absolutely not. <laughs> and caramel. Don't forget the caramel and the nuts. The nuances of chocolate? I'm from San Francisco. Okay. So next, so look in the chat regarding the food writer. We'll get to the nuances of chocolate. <laughs> Yeah, we're going to do a food episode. The real true nuance and value of the Reggie bar, of course, was that it was aerodynamic. And when you hurled it onto the field, you got good distance on it. It did. It did. As Yankee fans can attest when they would throw him onto the field over and over again. Not always in admiration. No, not at all. He had a complicated relationship with Yankee fans. Oh, my God. I completely forgot about that. (laughs) And then he came back with the Angels. My brother, my late brother was at this game. He came back, hit a big home run, and the entire ballpark started chanting Steinbrenner sucks. Went nuts. Yes, he took Ron Guidry deep, I remember. Right, and they started chanting Steinbrenner sucks, Steinbrenner sucks. That was, my, that was a great moment. That was fantastic. My, my brother was at that game. See, we are Gen Xers waxing poetic about the past. Here we go. <laughs> Oi, Faith. Steve, we throw it to you. <laughs> All right, well, I think we've come to the end of another hour. As Jonathan Safran Four wrote, No baby knows when the nipple is pulled from his mouth from the last time, but you know, because this episode has definitely been pulled well from your ears, I guess. It's important we get the orifice right. It is ending right now. What the fuck are you talking about? 
it's a quote from a great author. <laughs> I think you gotta keep uh, like, cause what the fuck are you talking about? Okay, let's pull it together. Let him, let him do it again. As always, if you enjoy the show, please go to the podcatcher of your choice and rate, review, and subscribe. I checked the iTunes reviews the other day. We have all five stars, so thanks, moms everywhere for doing that. You too can be next. And on that note, emulating the pioneering radio broadcaster Harry Von Zell, who once said, ladies and gentlemen, the president of the United States, Hubert Heaver, on behalf of Lincoln Mitchell, Frank Gritty, Tova Wang, and myself, we'll see you next time on Say It Ain't Contagious. Se siente bien saber que cuando le pones sirope a tu Big Breakfast with the Hotcakes de McDonald's, tú controlas dónde cae. Primero se acerca a tu biscuit y rodea la salchicha, luego llega a tus hash browns y finalmente a tus huevos revueltos, dándoles ese sabor dulce del maple. Ordena por anticipado en el app de McDonald's y que fluya el sirope. Para pa pa pa. Móvil Order and Pay en McDonald's participantes ergira la descarga y registro. Life gets a lot more magical when you dream. So let's dream of a vacation unlike any other. A magical Disney cruise. <laughs> Hiya, pal! Where new stories meet tales as old as time. Enchanté, mon ami! And your family will be cared for the moment you step aboard. Sail from Florida to Disney's private island paradise and get ready for a dream come true with Disney Cruise Line. 